Good morning to all of you. I said it in the first service, so I'm going to say it again. I've worked all morning to keep my emotions under control. And then this song ripped me to shreds in the first service in a good way. And I've hit my emotional strings again this service. I'm Pastor Tim, the executive pastor. I know most of you know that, but we may have visitors with us. And um, I'm going to share with you... Uh, I'm not sure if you're, I'm not sure you're going to really hear a sermon this morning. You're really going to hear some personal things from me about what the Lord has been teaching me the last couple of years. I'm excited to share with you. I have been learning a lot in the last couple of years. Um, if you don't know, my wife of 42 years, Margie, died on October the 25th, and as we have all walked through that together, and especially our staff, I... Um, <clears throat> I was sharing a lot with the staff about some of the things that I have been learning, um, and um, they encouraged me to share that with, with you, and so that's why I'm preaching this morning. I'd like to say a little something about the, the title, because I don't want you to misunderstand it. The title of the sermon is My Grief, A Pastor's Reflection. It, uh, the reason I want to make a comment about it is because when I f- fear when you see that the term my grief, it could sound almost kind of self-centered, like this is my grief and you need to pay attention to it, but that's not really what it, what it is trying to communicate. In fact, uh, um, if there's one thing I've learned right off the top, it's this, that everybody's grief is, is a bit different. Uh, I've learned that, and so what, I'm, what the title is telling you is I'm just going to share with you from my perspective of what we went through, and I'm going to hope and pray that the Lord might encourage you in that. I'd like to start by reading uh, uh, from the Scriptures to you. Uh, it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, um, and so if you can turn there, if you have your Bibles, I'll read that in just a moment, but I want to make just a couple of quick comments um, to prepare you to hear these, these words. The Apostle starts right off by saying, we do not want you to be ignorant. And I think that term ignorant in our culture can sound kind of, kind of condescending, like I don't want you to be stupid. But that's not really what is being communicated. What he's, what he's really saying is, is, I want you to pay attention because what I'm going to share with you might be something you have not thought through before. It's a new insight, if you will, about death. And then after that, what does he not want us to be ignorant about? Um, About those who have fallen asleep. And he's not talking about people that are like taking a nap. The term they have fallen asleep is a reference to death. So he's going to give some insights on how we as believers are to deal with death. And so with that said, let me read the passage to you and follow along with me if you have your scriptures. Brother, we do not, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. I'm going to share some personal things with you here in just a moment, but I want to make a couple of observations about this text. There's a lot there. I'm not going to exegete that, this passage. It's a lot there about the end of time. I just want to say this. <clears throat> the apostle, the writer of 1 Thessalonians, is trying to deliver to his readers, trying to deliver his readers from the grief experience of the rest of men or of those who have no hope. What he's saying is we do not grieve like everyone else because we have hope. Now, that doesn't mean we don't grieve. In fact, I believe it's legitimate for believers to grieve for the living who are suffering and because they miss their loved ones. But we must remember that those who have died in Christ are much better off than those who are still here. We must never forget that. This is where I think we can go astray because we somehow think of death, I think we just forget. And we think of death as the worst thing in the world. But we must remember that for a believer, it is the best thing. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, verses 23 to 24 says, I am torn between the two, life and death. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. It is this fact, and it is why the Apostle says, we do not grieve like the rest of men. And then he says, therefore, encourage each other with these words. And that's what I'm hoping to do this morning. I hope to encourage you with the things I have learned. And I've learned a lot in the last couple of years. I realize many of us have lived this together. We've walked through this time together, but we may have people that don't know everything that happened. So I'm going to set things up to show you what I've learned. I'm going to sh kind of walk back and just give you a... a replay kind of the last two years of, of our lives. Um, and I chose to do this because as I share with you, I think you're going to, I'm going to show you some things that we learned even as we walked through these things. I will never forget August the 17th, 2013. It was our 40th anniversary, my wife Margie and I. We were having dinner at Jocko's in Napomo. It's a great place to eat. After dinner, my wife went into the bathroom. She was in there quite a while. She noticed something of which I won't go into detail about, um, but we knew we had a problem. I really thought that it was related to her diabetes because she's type, she was type 2 diabetic, and I, I really just thought we need to get to the doctor and get it squared away. Um, she, went, she had her first doctor's appointment in September uh, of that same year, just a few weeks later. Um, the doctor found a mass in my wife's uterus, 
We were then, um, we were then um, referred to doc, a gynecologist, Dr. Boone, and um, she did a biopsy, and um, it was just a few minutes later that she called us in to give us the results of the biopsy. I, I just want to tell you, this was the first time in this journey where I saw a strength in my wife's faith that I had not seen before. We knew we weren't getting good news. It was very clear. Dr. Boone was struggling to give us the news. I think it must be hard to do that. I'll never forget what my wife said. She could tell that Dr. Boone was struggling. I mean, she's going to get bad news, and she's reaching out to Dr. Boone. That's who she was. And she said, Dr. Boone, she said, I just want you to know that we know the Lord. And there's nothing that you can tell us that we're not going to be able, we're going to be okay with. We're going to be okay. So be at peace and just share with us. Dr. Boone welled up in tears, and then she shared with us that the tumor in my wife's uterus was cancer. We were given treatment options. We were told we could either go north or south. We were told that this didn't need to happen quickly because it was not something that would grow quickly. Of course, we wanted to deal with it quickly, so we decided to go north, and um, we were connected with our surgeon, Kate. She didn't like to be called Dr. O'Hanlon. She likes to be called Kate. We loved her. And surgery was set for October 22nd, 2013. We went down on the night of, on the afternoon of the 20th, spent the night. We met with her for the first time, the surgeon, on October 21st. Uh, she explained to us that she thought she could do the surgery laparoscopically, uh, complete hysterectomy, and remove the tumor, which I just thought was, I don't even know, that just seemed crazy that they could do that laparoscopically. She then examined Margie, and I was, I'm glad that I'm not a woman. Um, after the examination, she found out that the tumor had grown dramatically and it was too large to do the surgery laparoscopically so that it needed to be, um, rather than spending one night in the hospital and one night in the area and going home the next day, we, it was going to be major surgery and they were gonna, we were going to have to spend four or five nights in the hospital and then come home. When all was said and done, my wife was, had major surgery and, and uh, she had um, uh, 50 staples, as I remember, put in to close the, the surgery site. Uh, we called and informed our girls that afternoon after we had talked with the doctor. They asked if they should come. Um, I said, no, you have work to do, we'll be fine. I'm really glad that at this one time in their lives they actually said no to their father and they came. I was glad they were there because what I didn't know was how long and torturous the surgery would be. I can't imagine what I would have done had they not been there. So I would just encourage you to, if you feel like you need to go be with someone, go be with them. October 22nd was the surgery. As I remember, we were, in the, we were there for quite a while getting prepped and all that kind of stuff. I remember when they wheeled Margie into the, in for the surgery, I kissed her. I told her I loved her, and I said, you come back to me. I don't know why I didn't plan to say that, but that's just what came out of my mouth. After the surgery, 
the doctor came and saw, saw us, and she claimed success four or five hours later. But it wasn't until nine that evening that I knew everything was, that, that my wife was okay. I finally got to see her about nine o'clock that evening. And I just want to tell you, there was something that overwhelmed me on that day that I did not know about prior to that day, and that was how, how do you inform people? How do you keep them informed as to what's going on? And I was all of a sudden overwhelmed with like, who do I call? Who do I text? Who do I, you know? And one of our daughters um, suggested that I uh, suggested Caring Bridge to me, which I think that's the name of it. And it, it's a, like an online blog, and you can let people know that you're, you're putting updates on there. And, and um, I just want to tell you that if you ever go through something like that, I would encourage you to think about that before you get there because it was overwhelming. And my phone was blowing up because people wanted to know. Um, we were in the hospital for about a week. Uh, Monday, October 28th, uh, they took Margie back into surgery again to insert a chemo port, and we came home that afternoon. Uh, in early November, we met our doctor, Dr. Havard, for the first time uh, to start the process of chemo. He asked Margie a lot of questions that day about her health. He was simply familiarizing himself with us and her case. And somewhere in the question-answer time, Dr. Havard asked, uh, a question that caused Margie to share about the fact that she'd had some breathing struggles in the hospital. Um, Dr. Havard had a concerned look on his face. He wanted to do some more tests before we started the chemo. I frankly um, wasn't that worried about it. Um, I honestly didn't think that much about it at all because we had been told that Margie would be fine, that her cancer was treatable and curable. On the tests were done on, uh, on November 26th, 2013, two days before Thanksgiving, we got the results. We were told that the cancer had moved into both lungs. The terminology now was that the, key, the cancer is treatable but not curable. Dr. Havard carefully explained what this all meant. I admit that I was struggling to understand what he was telling us. I just knew it wasn't good. Finally, I asked the question, Dr. Havard, could you bottom line this for me? I don't know what to tell our girls. He said, well, tell them the truth. I knew at that point that I had not articulated my question well. I said, Dr. Havard, certainly I will tell them the truth. I just don't know that I know exactly what the truth is. Can you make it plainer for me? He said, oh, okay. He said, we'll start chemo treatments. If the chemo doesn't work, because sometimes the cancer is resistant to it, he said, I don't expect that to be the case, but if the cancer doesn't, I mean, if the chemo doesn't work, this will be your last holidays together. That was very hard to hear. But he said, if the chemo does work, and he expected that it would, Margie would have two years, but probably not 10. How do you share that news with your family? Who do you share it with and when? We, we, we realized that we needed to tell our girls and their husbands first. We didn't want them to hear it through the grapevine. So we called a family meeting later that evening. We never did another family meeting again, by the way. 
because our girls told us that it was torturous waiting for the bad news. They said they'd rather get a phone call or a text, and so we chose to do that from that point forward. We did decide after we told them at that family meeting, though, that we decided we weren't going to say anything to anybody because we just wanted to go through Thanksgiving and enjoy the holiday, and then we would start telling people and putting the information out after Thanksgiving. Now, something about putting out information, really three things that I have learned about this, or at least three things that I can think about at this moment. One is, and I, I know I should know this, but in the age of technology, information spreads like crazy. <clears throat> and it spreads whether you want it to spread or not. We felt that it was best for us to put it out there so that it would be accurate information. Now this whole thing about information spreading, I think can frustrate people because sometimes I think we think people are gossiping. But, but I want you to know we didn't look at it that way. We realized that people just cared about us. And they wanted to get prayer and they wanted to let others know. And it was not a, there was nothing sinister behind that. But we thought rather than, rather than set them up to put out wrong information, we decided we'd just, we'd put it out accurately as quickly as we could. And so that's what we did. Another thing I want to share with you is that Margie and I talked about it, we prayed about it, we spent a lot of time discussing it, and we decided that we were going to live this struggle publicly. Um, you may not know this, but we're both very private people. We struggled, we struggled with sharing what we're going through with others, partially because we just don't want to be whiners, you know? I mean, that's what hit us. But we knew we needed to do what, was, what wasn't comfortable for us because of what we believe about the church. The scriptures clearly teach that we are a community, and even a better word would be a family of people who go through good and bad times together. We need each other, and so I think we ought to tell the church everything because we need each other. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So we, we decided we were going to leave it, live it out publicly, even though it made us uncomfortable. After November 26th, the day that we learned that the cancer had gone into her lungs, for the next two years, there were chemo treatments monthly, more medications and doctor visits than I can count. We dealt with a blood clot in Margie's neck. We dealt, we dealt with a pathological break in her hip. We went from her being able to move around and just be her to a walker, a wheelchair, a toilet extension seat, a shower seat. She eventually had to be on oxygen 24-7. Her driver's license was taken away. We experienced an emergency trip to the hospital, had two separate stays in the hospital. There were doctor bills, insurance, phone calls, waiting through automated systems. But in the midst of all of that, there were many wonderful, intimate talks about life, love, the Lord, heaven, and our church family. And for the first time in my life, I used a phrase that before seemed so cheesy and sicky sweet to me. I didn't even want to use it. I'd hear people use it all the time, and I and I caught it coming out of my mouth, and that is, Jesus is enough. 
He is enough. He was enough. And he will always be enough. On October 25th, 2015, 2015, one month short of the two years, Margie was finally out of pain. And she was at home with the Lord. I had the best wife in the world. I praise God for her. From my perspective, and I think she would tell you the same thing, we had the perfect relationship and we had no regrets. We spent a lot of time talking about that. And I just want to tell you this, the reason we didn't have a lot of regrets because we spent so much time, we learned this from being in the church and being around the Lord. We had no regrets because we spent so much time talking about marriage and working on our marriage. And I just want to tell you that if Margie was here, we would be going to the marriage retreat. So often we talk ourselves out of these things. We don't have money, we can't get childcare, blah, 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 blah. You can always come up with excuses. But we always, we didn't have a lot of money in the early days, but we made, we, we figured out a way to get to those types of things. I will be at the marriage retreat this year, by the way, because I'm gonna emcee the whole thing. And I just want you to know you cannot you can just never know how other people will put into your life and how you might put into other people's lives, and I want to encourage you to be a part of that. Much of what you might like about me was because of my wife and how the Lord used her in my life. I was very proud of my wife, and I'm so proud of how she finished so strong. That day was the most unique day in my life when she died because it was both horrible and wonderful all at once. I want you to know I appreciated the people, people that came to our house that day. I want you to not, I want to tell you, don't be afraid to do that. Uh, it was nice having people come by. The one thing I would tell you is just don't overstay your visit. Now, I've tried to put some things that I've learned as we walk through these two years and are continuing to walk through it. I've tried to put it into categories. I don't know how, how good I've done that, but I'm going to try to share some, some things with you in a concise way. First off, I want to share with you a couple of things that I couldn't have prepared for. I thought I was prepared for them, but I, I wasn't, and I've learned you just can't be prepared for it. At the moment Margie died, I was overwhelmed by emotion. Uh, that was part of the grief. Um, I thought I was ready for that. You can't prepare for that hurt. It hurts way more than you can imagine in your mind. It was something I had never experienced before, and in fact, I, as I thought about it, 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 it the best way I can illustrate it is, is from, my, from my boogie boarding experiences in the ocean. I've from time to time been caught by a wave that was too big, and it would throw me over and it would slam you to the, to the ocean floor, and you're just helpless. And the best thing you can do is just lay there until the wave goes by. And that's what this emotion was like. I needed to just let it happen and go by. Once the wave went by of the emotion, at that moment I turned from Margie. I put my hand on her hand, but I couldn't look at her and pray the prayer just because it was too hard. And I prayed and thanked the Lord I really did thank him that, the, that she was outside 
that body that so confined her in the last few years and months and days. I thought of Revelation 21.4, which says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. I think I would say what George Mueller said at his wife's funeral in 1870. He said, the Lord was good to give her to me. The Lord was good to leave her with me so long. And the Lord was good to take her from me. I need a Kleenex if anybody can get me one. (laughs) But I want you to know as much as it hurts, just one would be fine. Just one. Thank you. One's good. A man would give you one. (laughs) Sorry. This did happen to me in the first service. And now I feel bad because I feel like I've just slammed every woman in the room. As hard as it is, I want you to know that the grief I've learned is a good thing. Elizabeth II said, grief is the price we pay for love. If you don't want to grieve, just don't love. Somebody else said, grief is the last act of love we have to give to those we loved. Where there is deep grief, there was great love. And so I have learned that every time I cry, every tear reminds me of what a great gift my wife was to me from the Lord. And I'm thankful. Another thing that you can't, I couldn't prepare for was what I call hijacked emotions. You can be cruising along and out of the blue you get hit. You think everything's fine and it just hits you. A couple of examples. Our family decided to go to, decided to get away. It was a great idea of our, of our girls and just we decided to get away for Thanksgiving. We went to the coast. I was just really enjoying my time with our family. It was just a lot. It was just great, good. And then we sat down to eat Thanksgiving dinner, and um, my oldest daughter has a tablecloth that she puts out every year, and we take Sharpies and sign it. And I hadn't really thought about it, but I sat down, and I was really feeling good, and I looked over, and there was what Margie had signed the year before. I am thankful for my family. And see, it just took me, it just took me. There was just, there was nothing I could do about it. I just needed to let that wave go by. Um, out of the blue. Did you see that Natalie Cole died? I don't know if you know who Natalie Cole is, but I think she's a tremendous speaker. She has a song, I mean, a tremendous singer. She has a song, This Will Be an Everlasting Love. And, you know, they play songs when these people, when singers die. And I love that song. This will be an everlasting love. This will be the one I've waited for. This will be the first time anyone loved me. Loving you was some kind of wonderful because you show me how much you care. You've given me the thrill of a lifetime and made me believe you've got more thrills to spare. You've brought a lot of sunshine into my life. You've filled me with happiness I never knew and you gave me more joy than I ever dreamed of. I heard the song on the radio, I had to pull over, I couldn't see, and I just needed to cry. But again, it was tears of joy because I was thankful for what the Lord had given me through Margie. 
And then there was the physical side of grief that I was not prepared for. You know, in the last months caring for Margie, I didn't get a lot of sleep. I actually thought I was doing pretty good. I wasn't tired. I, I did okay, you know. Those of you that know me know that I think sleep's a bit overrated. But what was I found so fascinating was after she died, I actually slept really well. But I was struggling with being tired all the time, and I'm just now starting to get over this kind of low-grade headache. And I think it's just the physical part of the grief was starting to manifest itself. And I couldn't, I just wasn't ready for that. I have two things that haunt me, two thoughts that haunt me. If I don't deal with Margie's death well, people will doubt my faith in the Lord. That haunts me. I love 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. I've, it's one of my favorite passages. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. I worry about if I grieve too much that people will think, where's the Lord in his life? And I, I don't want to give a wrong impression to, about the Lord. The other thing that haunts me is if I deal with death too well, too well, people might doubt my love for Margie. I don't know why I share that with you. It's just something that's been on my mind. I want to share with you two things that were hard for me. Um, I understand it when these things are said, but it's really hard for me to hear someone say it's not fair. Margie and I didn't feel that way at all. In fact, we thought the Lord's been very fair to us, gave us 42 years together, two wonderful daughters, husbands that we love, granddaughters, a wonderful church. You know, I mean, we, he's given us so much, and most of all, he gave us eternal life. So we didn't think he was unfair to us. But I think what people don't realize is that when we say it's not fair, that's, that's a direct shot, shot at the Lord himself. We're saying he's not fair. And Psalm 139.16 says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. We're all going to die. And it's up to the Lord when that's going to happen. So it, hurt, it, it was hard for me to hear that, although I understood it. The other thing that was hard for me to hear was when people would say, Tim, it's okay for you to cry. Now, you don't have to be so strong. Well, I want you to know I'm not that strong. But in the Lord, there's a lot of strength that comes. Um, but you know, crying just wears me out. It hurts. I don't like to cry. And when I do cry, I like to do it public. I like to do it privately because it embarrasses me. That's how the Lord wired me. I, I, Psalm 139, 14, we're all different. Um, the psalmist says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We aren't all the same. And I think we need to be careful I think so often when we say these kinds of things, we try to project on others how we think they should grieve, and I think we need to be careful with that. Just because they don't cry doesn't mean they're not grieving. I have a bunch of random thoughts. Um, now that Margie's gone, I, I was looking at the pictures of her at the memorial, and I realized that I missed a lot of subtleties. I didn't pay enough attention to the subtleties in her personality that made her so beautiful to me. A smile. She had just a beautiful smile. She had this zany, quick-witted personality. I can't tell you how many times 
I, someone would use, or I, a word would come up, and I would say, Margie, how do you spell that? And she would t say, T-H-A-T. <laughs> and I'd say, no, not that, the word, you know? But I so appreciated it. Uh, I saw a picture of the, our daughters kissing her on the cheeks, and I was reminded that she has this smile and this look of just pure joy when those kinds of things would happen. And I wish I'd have paid more attention to those things when she was here. And she was such a lady. I love that about her. I should have told her that more often. The worst part of every day is when I lay down at, in bed at night because that's when we would typically kiss one another and say, I love you. For me, the best part of every day is the morning when I open my eyes. I think it's one day closer to normal or at least a new normal. I think this week is better than the last. I do think time is our best friend. I feel a huge burden to help my children to feel normal. I wonder what my wife is experiencing at this very moment. I'm grateful that the Lord took her quickly and comfortably. There is still not a moment that she is not on my mind. I, I wish that I had thought as much about her when she was alive as I do now that she's gone. People have said to me, those were just some random thoughts. Um, people have said to me, Tim, you look like you're doing pretty well. Um, I, like to see your, I like to see your smile. So I thought it might be good to share with you some things that helped me. Um, first off, I would tell you I'm thankful for my friends at Bravo Farms in Tulare, especially two girls in particular that, you know, I started going in there to eat because my wife, or to get food, my wife couldn't eat in the end at the, as we got closer to the end. And those girls and those employees took an interest in me. They learned who I was. They, they just treated me so nice. And for me, it was just a little bit of an oasis in the day when I could go in and just kind of get away from it, even if it was just for a moment. And I share that with you because of this. I think we need to be reminded that we never know how the Lord might use us in the day-to-days, you know, hours of life. Um, you know, we have a waiter or, or a waitress that waits on us, and they don't do that good of a job, and maybe they're even a little grumpy Maybe we ought to give them a bigger tip because maybe they're having a bad day and maybe we ought to try to bless them. That's just what hits my mind and it really helped me. I learned the value of cards. These were sent to my wife. Notice they're in a very pretty box. I didn't get a lot of cards in those first couple of years. That's not a complaint. They were coming to Margie, but I want you to know when you send a card to her, you send a card to me because I read them. Margie let me read them. And I got so much joy in seeing what other people was saying to my wife. I learned from these cards that my wife had asked people to pray for her, that she would be a good witness to the, for the Lord no matter what had happened and no matter what was going on. She wanted to be happy and she wanted to express the joy of the Lord. So I'm thankful for cards. These are the cards that came to me after she died. You'll notice they're in a Tupperware container because that was all I could find this morning. 
and they are precious to me. I don't throw, I'm not someone that keeps cards, I throw them away, but I am keeping these because it's nice to read them occasionally, and I do. And so I learned the value of cards. They really helped me. I learned the value of prayer. I, yeah, you know, I'm a pastor. I have to say that, right? I, I, what I'm telling you is I know the value of prayer, but I experience prayer in a new way. I used to hear people say, you know, when I would say, I, hey, I want you to know I'm praying for you. And they would say this, I feel your prayers. And I used to think, hmm, wonder what it feels like because I don't feel your prayers. I mean, that's kind of what I would think. I'm being really transparent with you. I know it maybe sounds cynical as it comes out of my mouth, but it's like, come on, you feel my prayers? You know what? I had an, I experienced that. The first, this, this, the second Monday after Margie died, it was the second night that I had gone to our, our group, our small group. It was raining that night. It was cold. It was dreary. I had a great, love being with the R group, had a great evening, but I got out into the car and I was pulling, as I was pulling away, I was just really lonely because I realized I was going home to a home that usually would have Margie there waiting for me and she wasn't going to be there. And I just felt really lonely and sad. And then all of a sudden, I'm not kidding you, it just went away. It just went away. And all of a sudden, I felt fine. So my, I noticed it was so, it, it was just so strong that I noticed it. And then my phone beeped, and it was a text. And I'd like to tell you I pulled over to read it. <laughs> but I picked it up, and I hit the text, and it was from a friend. And she said, Tim, I want you to know, on this dark, rainy, and dreary evening, I just prayed for you that you would know the Lord's comfort. And I thought, oh, that's what it feels like. And so I learned that. I enjoyed getting meals from people that I didn't expect to get meals from. I enjoyed getting meals from people that I expected to get meals from. I don't need food, but I sure loved having them come over. I mean, look at me. Um, I enjoyed when they would pray, drop the meal off and pray for me before they left. I love her, our group. They have just ministered to my heart. They've actually made me believe that they care about me. I'm really thankful for our church, family, friends. God has been good to me and my family, and maybe I struggle less because I have so much support. I believe this to be the case. And then finally, I'd like to say, I want, I want to say a couple of things to you. Maybe this is the pastor in me, but I want to just give you a couple of things to think about. I think saying less, I just want to tell you, I think saying less is better. I don't know why we feel like we have to have insightful things to say to people. You know, we want to try to say something that'll make them feel better. I got to tell you, when you're in the midst of that kind of grief, there's not a lot that you can say. Um, and actually, one of the most precious things that someone did for me did not involve words at all. And I know exactly when it happened. It was the, it was the sec, it, Margie died on a Sunday. It was the very next Sunday I came to church. I was regretting coming to church because you know, you, you feel like you're the center of attention. It kind of wears on you, although you love it. 
But I was kind of regretting that morning, and, and it, was be- it was wonderful, obviously. But um, one of the couples in our R group, their daughter, who's a teenage girl, I walked out. She saw me out in the courtyard out there, and she came running up to me, and she just threw her arms around me. I put my arms around her. Her body was kind of pulsing because she was crying. You know, I could feel it. And I just thought it was the most precious thing in the whole wide world. I don't think I'll ever forget it because she said nothing, but in that hug, what she communicated to me was, I love you, I care about you, I'm hurting for you. She didn't have to say a word. It made my whole day. So I think saying less is better. You know, when someone asks you, how are you doing? That's a very hard question. Um, Because what are you going to say? I'm doing terrible. Well, you're not really doing terrible. I'm doing great. Well, you're not really doing great. It's just a hard question to answer. And so, you know, and everybody says it. Hey, how you doing? I don't know. I've never been through this before. So again, I would just suggest that you say nothing or, I mean, it's enough to say, I want you to know I'm thinking about you and I'm praying for you. Second thing I want to share with you is I want to encourage you, you can't take away the pain. So don't try. Don't try to solve the problem for everybody. We always want to try to say something that's going to help them. Uh, An example that I would give is the the day Margie died, my girls asked me about spending the night, and they did. They spent the night with me, and I was thankful for that. I needed them to spend the night with me that night. Uh, We did some things the next day as a family. Their husbands took the day off work, which was precious to me, and we went around and did funeral things. And as we got later in the day, I was thinking about it, and I finally got the girls to a point where I said, girls, you need to go home tonight. They didn't want to go home, I don't think. I think they wanted to stay with their dad. You know, they wanted to solve. They knew I was going to struggle. And I said, girls, you can stay with me another night. You could stay with me another week. You could stay with me for a month or a year. But sooner or later, I'm going to have to walk through that door. So you can't solve every every problem for people, so don't try. And then finally, I want to tell you that perspective is everything. I fully believe that we spend way too much time thinking about what we've lost rather than thinking about what we have. Philippians 3, 13 to 14, a portion of it says, Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. We have a lot to live for. I read on Facebook, not too long after Margie died, I read on Facebook um, something that, frankly, I think the person that posted it is very negative. And here's what that person posted. None of you. Says a negative mind will never give you a positive life. That is very true in my mind. It's also biblical. Philippians 4, 8, 9 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things, and the God of peace will be with you. And that has really helped me to think about all the things that I have and all the things that I have to live for or need to live for, the kingdom of God, for family, for, this, for people in this church. We, we need to live while we have the opportunity to live. And 
quit worrying about what we've lost. And actually, if you think about what you've lost in the way that I think the Lord has helped me to think about it, you find yourself being very grateful. I just think we get too focused on ourselves. We quote it often, the Matthew 6.33 says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And folks, I, I, I think, forgive me, but I think that for some people, grief becomes an intention getter. In other words, pay attention to me, I'm hurting. And I think we have to be careful with that. The Lord has given us a bunch, and we need to put the focus on Him. I don't know how people do it without the, without the Lord and without His church. And the last thing, which always makes me emotional, is I want to say this to you. Thank you so much, because you have loved me and my family through this time, and you've done a good job. And I want you to know that through all of it, I have seen the hands of the Lord at work and you are part of his hand. And I want you to know that through it, I've seen so many good things that the Lord has done. And if you go through grief or you go through hard times, if you will pay attention, you will see the Lord working in your life as well. Please stand. God has given us life and he wants us to live it for him. When you go through those doors, I would encourage you to never forget that you, we are to live for Him. And I want to say this to you. God bless you, one and all. Goodbye. Have a good day.